morning, church. Happy Sabbath to you. It's good to be here. Um, Brandon Westgate. I am currently serving as the youth director in the Rocky Mountain Conference. And so I get the privilege of working with a lot of young people. And, um, and I get to see some things happen in youth ministries that, um, that honestly, I didn't have a lot to do with. Um, you who are parents are raising your children in God-fearing homes. You are pouring into them and investing into them. You're encouraging them in their little walk with Jesus. And things that we do like camp and things like that, they come to camp. They have this great love for Jesus. And we, we have a great week together. At the end of that week, we ask them if they want to make a decision. And many times they say, yes, I want to be baptized at camp. I want to do this and I want to do that. I just love Jesus. And it's like, we see those decisions happen at camp, but we didn't do a lot. We had fun with them during that week. Hopefully, we showed them a God who is for them and not against them. Hopefully, we showed them that God is a loving God and a compassionate God and somebody who wants to be in their life. But ultimately, as parents, as school teachers, as pastors, as elders in this church, as deaconesses, you have poured into them. And we just get to see the end result of really the ministry that you are doing every day with your children. And so from the youth department, I just wanted to say thank you for investing in the young people of this conference. We, like I said, get to see some amazing things happen, but we know those things don't just happen because of what we're doing at camp or because of what we're doing at this youth outreach project or whatever. We know that's just a result of what has already been going on. So I'm thankful to be able to partner with you guys. We're thankful as a youth department to be able to see really the fruit of your investment of time and energy and resources in your young people. So thank you from your youth department. Um, I did want to mention a couple of things too regarding youth before we jump into the message this morning. One of them is, is that this morning, actually it'll be this afternoon, in Union there's a couple of teams, Pathfinder clubs, that have been involved in the Pathfinder Bible experience. Some of you know that as, as another name. Anybody want to venture what that name is? Bible Bowl, right? That's what they used to call, they used to call it Bible Bowl. It's a Pathfinder Bible experience now. Two teams from the Rocky Mountain Conference finished in first place. They are now at Lincoln, Nebraska. They're competing. I shouldn't say competing, right? Because it's not really a competition. It's more of an exhibition of what they've learned. But they're there um, representing the Rocky Mountain Conference at the union level of the Pathfinder Bible Experience. If they are able to get first place there, then they'll go to Tampa, Florida. That's where the national level of Pathfinder Bible Experience happens. And so if you have a minute today and you, and you want to remember to pray for our Pathfinder Bible Experience teams from Rocky Mountain Conference, and really for all of them, um, maybe that would be a good thing for them to support them that way. There's also another thing coming up with Pathfinders. I think I checked today, and I think, if I'm correct, it's 533 days away. So that sounds like a long time, especially if you're a young person. But International Camporee is coming, and it's going to be in our conference. It has been at <clears throat> in Oshkosh for a long time, and now it's actually going to be in Gillette, Wyoming, um, a few hours north from here. And we're anticipating 55,000 Pathfinders. Can you imagine? We're going to more than double the size of the town up there in Gillette. <clears throat> we're going to invade them for a week. And there's already news articles being written. Um, 
by secular newspapers about that event. And so there's a great amount of anticipation building up to that event. And so if you <clears throat> or your children, um, if you're Pathfinder age, if you're in Pathfinders, it's coming. And it's coming sooner than we think. 533 days sounds like a long time. Um, for those of us that have a few years on us, it's not that long. And so um, if you haven't made plans already to be there or to help, um, maybe this would be a good opportunity for you to go, wow, how can I get involved with that? And you can just see me afterwards and I can tell you some volunteer opportunities we have for people interested in helping out with the international campery. We've got people coming from all over the world, literally, to be involved in that campery. So a lot going on in our youth department, a lot going on in our world today as well. I want to open up scripture with you this morning for a bit. And uh, before I do that, I always like to pray before I open up scripture. I don't know if that's your habit or custom. Um, I, for the first 20 plus years of my life, I was an atheist, agnostic. Um, I, as I started reading scripture, I read one day that spiritual things are spiritually understood. And so I, I've discovered that I can read my Bible for facts and data and dates, and I can get those things. But if I really want to hear the Lord speaking to me, I realized I need to open up my heart to that. And so I'm going to pray. You're welcome to join me as we open up Scripture together this morning. Father in heaven, we are thankful today that you've given us a place to worship together. There's something about lifting up the name of Jesus in community. And so we pray this morning as we encounter your presence, as you speak to us from the word, that you would, Father, speak a word to our own hearts that we might know that there is a God in heaven who cares for us and that we might leave this place knowing that we've had an encounter with our creator. And so, Father, speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, if you have a Bible this morning, I'm going to be in John chapter 8. And I want to ask a question before I begin. And maybe it's a question that some of you might be too embarrassed to answer. But, but the question is this. Have you ever brought someone to Jesus? How many of you have ever brought someone to Jesus? You can raise your hand, it's okay. Nothing bad is going to happen if you raise your hand in church, right? Normally, when we say we're going to bring someone to Jesus, it's a good thing, right? It's a good thing. Many times in Scripture, we see people bringing people to Jesus. And most of the time, it's a great thing, right? Lots of times, people, uh, the disciples, when they're first called, right, one of the disciples says, man, maybe this is the Messiah. He goes and he gets his brother. He says, you need to come. I think I found the Messiah. I'm not sure, but maybe this is him. And later on in Scripture, we find, as Jesus is doing these miracles, that, that there's a paralytic, and his friends want something for him, and so they bring him to Jesus, and they're so invested in this that there's no room to get in the house. You remember the story? They dig down through the roof. They lower him down into the house. That's how desperate they wanted to get their friend to Jesus. Now, some of you have friends that need Jesus. I thought somebody might say amen. Some of you have friends that need Jesus. Amen? Some of you maybe have family members that need Jesus. Anybody have a family member they would love to see have an encounter with Christ? Man, I do. I've, I've got several, okay? And so... Bringing people to Jesus, by and large, is a good thing. The story we're going to read today, people are bringing someone to Jesus, and they're even religious people, but maybe they don't have the greatest intentions. 
Now, the story begins in John chapter 8, but there's a context to John chapter 8 that I don't want you to misunderstand or, or miss, and it's really John chapter 7. So if you have a Bible this morning, you want to turn with me to John chapter 7. I just want to read the first verse, and then we'll read a couple of other verses maybe as we go through it very quickly. But in John chapter 7, in verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He didn't want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. Now, you might say, well, that's a good reason to not go to Judea. <laughs> that's a good reason to not go to Jerusalem because the Jewish leaders there, they're not just looking for a way to question him or bring him in for a trial. They're looking for a way to kill him. The Bible's very plain about that. There's no mixed words there. Jesus knows that if he goes to Judea, that there's people there that are seeking to do him harm. Now, it's interesting because there's a feast going on. It's in verse 2. There's the Festival of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. If you're not familiar with the Feast of Tabernacles, it's sometimes called the Festival of Booths or the Feast of Booths. A tabernacle is like a tent or a temporary dwelling place. And the Jews would celebrate this every year. It was an annual festival, an annual feast that lasted for seven days. And they would literally leave their home. It would be like camping nowadays. And they would build a booth. They would build a temporary shelter. And it would remind them of their pilgrimage, their forefathers' pilgrimage in the wilderness with Moses. It was a reminder of that experience. And so they would literally camp out in makeshift tents for a week booths, tabernacles. That festival was coming on and Jesus' brother was saying, hey man, you really need to go um, because, you know, if you're really all that, then people need to see you. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Uh, by the way, Scripture also says his brothers really didn't believe him at that point. They didn't really believe that he was who he was. Maybe you've had family members that didn't believe in you much either. But Jesus wasn't even supported by his own family at this point. And so Jesus waits, and in John chapter 7, it tells us that he waits till about the middle of the week. So I don't know if this is day 3 or day 4, but sometime during the week, Jesus goes, and it's sort of an interesting phrasing because it says he goes secretly, so he doesn't make this grand announcement that he's going to Jerusalem, that he's going to Judea, probably because people are trying to kill him there. But he goes, and where he ends up in John chapter 7 is the temple of all places. The most public place in Jerusalem is where Jesus shows up. And he goes to this place in the temple. It's the treasury. It's, it's called the court of women, if you have a good map in your Bible and you want to look and kind of see where that was. It was a place where women and men, Jewish women and Jewish men, were allowed to go in the temple. And Jesus was teaching them, and he taught them as one who had authority. People were leaning in to hear the teachings of Jesus. And some of them in the crowd are saying, isn't this the guy they're trying to kill? And, and Jesus has a little conversation with some of them. And then we get to chapter 8. And in chapter 8, Jesus shows up at dawn back in the temple. This is a guy who is literally being hunted. And he still goes back to this very public place. And he gets into the temple early. And you'll notice, and I'll read it for you if you... If you want me to read it, I've got an NIV version. This is verse 2. It says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. 
Jesus showed up early at dawn. And when he got there, all of these people were already there waiting for him. Eagerly anticipating more of what they had gotten the day before. They gathered there early. I would like to propose to you that in the busyness of life today, that if you want to have some time with Jesus, you may need to start early. You may need to get up early. You may need to set aside some time at the very beginning of your day to have a real encounter with Jesus because I can tell you, at a certain hour of the day for me, my phone starts blowing up. Can anybody relate? Yeah, the busyness of the day will catch up to you very quickly. Some people say, you know, my morning is packed. I spend time with Jesus in the evening. Great. If that works for you, great. Just make sure that you are eager and anxious and jealous for that time. That you protect that time. That you have some time in your day that is just for you and Jesus. Now, it's an interesting thing because Jesus is there and he sits down teaching them. That posture, by the way, in that first century Hebrew culture means that Jesus was sitting down as a judge, as an authority. He's sitting there with them and he's teaching them. Now, it's interesting what happens next. Remember, this is Feast of Tabernacles, and there's a lot of people there in Jerusalem. It says in verse 3, my Bible, this is an NIV version, by the way. Yours might read different, and if it does, it's okay, right? There's nothing wrong with that. A lot of young people ask me what the best version of Scripture is, right? And my answer is always the same. It's the one that you'll actually read. If you have a Bible that has these and thous and you're not sure what a thither is, find a different version, one that makes sense to you, and then actually read it. Amen? Amen? Okay. So verse 3, this version says, uh, the teachers of the law, that's the scribes, by the way, and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Now, we're going to look at this. Don't, don't panic yet. They made her stand before the group or they set her before the group, depends on your translation, and they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, we're going to keep this PG because I know we've got kids here, but I want you to realize what's happening here, okay? Now, these are the religious leaders, and, and I know a lot of people mislabel this story. A lot of people label this story as the woman caught in adultery, I don't think that's a great, a great title for this story. I think a better title for this story is the religious leaders caught in hypocrisy. Okay? Let's just, let's just get over that hump. She's not the focus of this story. She is a side issue. Okay? And, and for these scribes and Pharisees, these religious leaders, she is just collateral damage. Okay? She's not the focus. I know that's what a lot of us want to focus on is her, but she's not the focus here. The focus is on what these religious leaders are actually doing. Because what they've said is they bring in this woman and they said they caught her in the act. Now, you need to know that, that this is a very serious charge that's brought against her because the Mosaic Law has a death penalty attached to it. And it was a very extremely rare thing for somebody to actually be caught in the act. Because the evidence required for such a charge is very high. The, the threshold is, is very high. Because it's not enough 
for somebody to see a man and a woman coming out of the same motel room together. That's not enough. It's not enough for somebody to walk into that motel room and see them in the same bed together. That's not enough. You see, the evidence for this is that at least two people have to see them actually in the act before a charge can even be levied. Now, with the seriousness level of that charge, you would think that the only way that could actually happen is if somebody set somebody up. And that's what happened here. Remember, it's the Feast of Booths. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. There's tents everywhere. It would be very easy for someone to entice someone or trick someone or play someone and get them to slip into one of those tents. Maybe an old boyfriend. Maybe who knows. The woman gets trapped. And what's very interesting is they catch her in the act, but they don't catch the guy. It's very curious how she is the only one that they are able to lay hands on. Now, they say they brought, they, they caught her in the act. The title of the message this morning, by the way, is Caught in the Act. Because someone else is about to get caught in the act as well. It's not the woman. Now, I want you to pay attention to what happens here because, because they, they bring her in. They, they set her in the midst of them. And I don't know if you realize what's happening here. I don't know if you've ever, like, played that role-playing thing where you sort of put yourself in other people's shoes, okay? Now, sometimes we want to put ourselves in the shoes of Jesus, but frankly, I've tried on Jesus' shoes, and they don't fit me. (laughs) They don't fit me. Um, I'm not Jesus. I I try to live for Jesus. I, I try. I fail. I try, though. So it's easy for us to sit in the seat of Jesus sometimes and say, yeah, Jesus is, yeah, this is a tough seat. This is a tough spot for Jesus. It's a tough spot. Because here you have the scribes and Pharisees. These are the religious leaders, right? These are your church elders, deacons, pastors. These are, these are who these people are. And, and they bring this woman who has been caught in the act. Okay? Caught in the act. There's, there's, no, there's no wiggle room here. There's no, she, she couldn't just say, yeah, well, I wasn't really doing it. No, she was caught. Have you ever been caught, by the way, in the act? I, man, I, I remember several times when I was a kid. <laughs> I remember one time, and my mom, and I love her to death. She's 85 years old. She's four foot seven, weighs 98 pounds. She's a little bitty thing. Um, she had seven kids. Can you imagine? And um, I'm number six out of seven. And she would take us, me and my two brothers especially, we would go shopping with her at Kmart um, back in the day. And I remember walking through Kmart one day with my mom because we had to stay close to the buggy. There were times if we weren't well, we had to keep our hand on the buggy. Maybe you can relate to that shopping cart. Don't take your hand off that cart, right? Um, yeah. And I remember in Kmart one day, I, we were walking, and I saw something kind of under a shelf, but not on the shelf, and I picked it up, and it was a little toy car, and it was a wind-up car, and 
randomly I can remember the details, it would actually, when you let it go, it would, it would go, and then this little lever would pop, and it would roll over, and then go again, and then roll over. And I found that thing on the floor. It was not in a package, um, but it looked like it was in pretty good shape, and I wound it up, and it started moving, and I went, ooh, and I put it in my pocket. Put it in my pocket. Because, because it was cool. <laughs> because I thought, wow, cool. And I put that thing in my pocket, and I was fiddling with it, right? And um, we went through the store, and my mother finished shopping, and we got out into the car, and I sat down in the back seat because my brother called it first. He called the front seat first. Did you guys do that? I called it. I called, he called it. I sat in the back, and I pulled out that little toy, and I wound it just a little bit, and it started doing that as it was unwinding, and my mother heard a sound she hadn't heard before. And before we left the parking lot, she had looked back and saw me with this toy. Now, my mother, being a good parent that she was, she said, where did you get that? And she's giving me an opportunity to do what? To confess, right? And me, being a seven or eight-year-old boy, said, I found it. And she pressed me, right? Where did you find it, right? Well, I, I found it in the store. She said, did you pay for that? Uh, it wasn't even in a package. It was just under the shelf. No, 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 no. Did you pay for that? Well, no. Well, then why do you think you can take it from the store then? And my mother made me get out of the car with this plastic toy that was not in a package and go back into Kmart and go to the customer service desk and tell them that I took this from their store. Caught in the act. Maybe you have a similar story of when you were caught. Maybe it was something as insignificant as a toy car, but maybe it taught you a lesson. Or maybe it was something bigger. Maybe you were caught doing something else. This woman caught in the act is thrown down in a very public place on purpose. Now, these religious leaders, and I want to I try to give them every break I can, but these religious leaders, there are a dozen different ways they could have handled this situation than the way they handled it. They chose to make a public spectacle of her because they could have just put her in a private place if they really wanted to refer the case to Jesus. They could have put her in a private place and gone to Jesus privately and whispered into his ear and said, hey, we need your help with something. See? And then they could have taken Jesus privately to deal with this woman's issue. You see, the reality is this. Sexual sin is a private sin. Now, they wanted to make it very public, and indeed they did, but that doesn't change the fact here. This woman, thrown down in the midst of the temple with this huge crowd gathered around Jesus with all of her shame, with this very public accusation coming not from some schmo, but from the religious leaders, accusing her, telling, we caught her in the act. I don't know how that would make you feel. I don't know how that would make you feel towards your religious leaders or your church. 
But this woman is there in the midst of them, exposed for what she had just done, for what she had just participated in. And they tell Jesus, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And I looked it up, by the way. Deuteronomy says that they should be killed, the hus- not, not the husband, the, the adulteress and the adulterer. <laughs> so the man and the woman should both be killed. But the stoning piece doesn't come until Leviticus. In Leviticus, it says if she is betrothed to someone, that is, she's engaged but not married and she does it, then she should be stoned. That's when the explicit stoning comes out. I don't know what this woman's case was. It's not super relevant. But the reality is, is that these guys have brought this woman in here and they don't care about her at all. They could care less what happens to her as long as they can trick Jesus. And make no mistake, this is a complete trap for Jesus. John spells it out for you in case you needed to know that. You see, if Jesus says, well, we're not going to stone her, then now he's ignoring the law of Moses. And if Jesus says, yeah, let's go ahead and stone her, well, now he's a cruel person who's not practicing what he preached about forgiveness. And so they think they have Jesus caught between a rock and a hard place, and they're probably going, oh, this is rich. We got him this time. We got him. Now, I want to take a pause here for a moment. Because there's a responsibility that religious leaders have. And if you know Jesus, and if you've ever thought about or if you've ever led somebody to Jesus, you're a religious leader. Let's just get that out of the way. If you're a believer, you're a religious leader. And as a believer, you have a responsibility to the people who are unbelievers around you. You have a responsibility to the believers around you as well. And your responsibility is to bring them to Jesus so they will recognize the love and compassion that Jesus has for them so that they might begin to live their life in such a way that's reflective of someone who has a relationship with Christ. These religious leaders, instead of ministering to this woman in her brokenness, instead decide to publicly shame her and they don't care, stones in hands, if Jesus says, let them rip. They will. They may even be looking forward to it. Now, it says something to me about how Jesus treats people. I've appreciated Pastor Jeff's sermons last week, especially about love. It's, it's a huge piece of the gospel. It's, I mean, Scripture declares if you're, if you're going to try to describe God, Scripture describes it maybe better than anything else you could say, that God is love. That's who he is. That is DNA. God is love. At the very core of his essence, God is love. And these scribes and Pharisees are treating this woman with anything other than love. They're treating her with disdain. They're treating her with hatred and cruelty. They don't care about her. They're supposed to reflect the God they serve to her, and they've chosen to not do that. And so they bring her in, they throw her down, and they say, what do we do with this woman? And it's really interesting because Jesus bends himself down, which is a posture of humility, by the way. Jesus stoops down, which is probably where the woman was, by the way. She was probably on the ground. I know 
Some translations say that she was standing there. That word just actually means that they set her there. It doesn't necessarily mean she was literally standing. And I think Jesus assumes the posture of stooping so that she will know that he is with her. He's with her. He's, he's still for her. And, and by the way, God is for you. Did you know that? Yeah, he's not against you. Doesn't matter what you've done, who you did it with, how many times. He doesn't care. He's for you. He's not against you. Doesn't mean he supports everything you do or endorses every sinful act. That's not what I'm saying. But you need to know that God is for you. And Jesus begins to write. Now, it's an interesting thing, and, and I'll read it to you in this version. It says, but Jesus bent down. Um, it, it's, John says, by the way, they're using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. They're just trying to trap him. And Jesus sort of just acts, acts like he doesn't even hear them. And he just bends down, and he started to write on the ground with his finger, presumably in the dust or the dirt on the temple floor. So Jesus is writing. Now, it's an interesting thing. John uses a particular word here for write. Now, he uses a different word. I think it's in verse 8 um, because he says he bends down and he, and he writes again. Um, yeah, he wrote again in verse 8. The, the word for write is graphene. Graphene. It's like uh, autograph, right? It's, it's graphic design. It's writing, writing. That's the normal word. That's not the word it uses when it says Jesus began to write. It's katagraphina. And it actually means to write an accusation. Oh. So when Jesus is writing, he's writing some kind of accusation. I don't know what he wrote. Commentators and people have speculated for centuries what Jesus must have written. I don't know what he wrote. But I do find it interesting that this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus actually writes something. This is it. He's writing. It seems like he's writing an accusation according to John. I don't know what it was. It is interesting in the Old Testament, Jesus writes, he writes his character on tablets of stone. Permanent medium, because God's character never changes. God is a God of love, right? And he exhibits that in those in those 10 promises that we have, right, on two tablets of stone. He, he writes it with his finger on that permanent medium. He says, this is who I am. This is who I'm always going to be. I'm the God who's for you, not against you. But here in this moment, he's writing some kind of an accusation in the dust. This, this sinful thing that's taken place, Jesus is writing it on probably the most temporary medium ever. Because a breeze blowing through the temple would probably blow it away. And I think Jesus is telling us, maybe today, that even though he is consistent, our sins can be washed clean so very easily if we just come to Christ. Wow. So Jesus is there. And this woman is there, but Jesus has got to demonstrate, because it looks like he's only got choice A and choice B, right? Either we stone her or we don't. If you don't stone her, you're excusing her sin. If you do stone her, you're... It's, but Jesus has a plan C here. And it's a plan that I don't think anybody anticipated coming. Because what Jesus does, after they continue to berate him, they're, 
they're pressing him. That's what the language is. That they're, they keep asking him, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Law says stoner. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Come on, Jesus. What are you going to do? And Jesus stands up. I think so he has eye contact with all those scribes and Pharisees. And he looks at them. And he says, any of you guys without sin, let them rip. You throw the first one. Now, it's interesting because some people read that and they say, well, everybody has sinned and so nobody could have thrown a stone. The context is that Jesus is asking them, any of you who had nothing to do with entrapping this woman in this particular sin, let the stones fly. If you're not complicit in what happened here, stone her. That's really what Jesus is asking here. It's a very specific ask. If you don't have anything to do with this, if you're innocent, stone her. And it's very telling what happens next, isn't it? As they drop their stones and one by one they exit the temple. Now, it's an interesting thing because we as religious leaders are always having to make decisions. And when I say religious leaders, I want to make sure that you get this. That's a believer. As a believer, you're always making decisions. Yes, for right or wrong, for, for righteousness or unrighteousness, yes, 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 all of that. But you're also making some decisions that, that, maybe, that maybe are harder than that. And sometimes we don't want to admit it, we make decisions we shouldn't make. Like we make decisions about whether this person is worthy to receive the gospel. All right, is anybody worthy to receive the gospel? We have to make decisions about when to hold someone accountable. Because we don't want to excuse sin. People need to be held accountable for their sin. But what does that look like in terms of justice and mercy? Because I'm going to tell you right now, as sinful human beings with corrupt DNA, we're not good at justice and we're not good at mercy. We don't do those things well. We just don't. We're bad at it. This woman, these, these guys were willing just to throw her, literally throw her under the bus. They couldn't care less if she lived or died as long as they can trap Jesus, as long as they can pull out something that's going to look like a victory to them. They didn't care what happened to her. And some of you have people in your lives that you wouldn't mind throwing under the bus. And you don't have to admit that in church, but it's the reality. And maybe social media brings out the worst in people, but I see posts on social media from professed believers that sort of make me cringe, that make me gasp at times. And politics are the worst, aren't they? Man, politics seem to bring out the worst in people. 
Man, I see people that are so pro-Trump or so pro-Biden that they could care less if one or the other of them died. In fact, they want them to, according to their Facebook posts. May we never get to the place as believers where we wish somebody was dead. Mercy. Jesus is trying to minister not only to this woman, but to these religious leaders as well. Because he loves them. And you might think, well, how could Jesus love somebody that would entrap somebody else and doesn't care if they live or die? Because he's Jesus. Jesus loves the people you hate. He does. And let's get back to this thing that, this crazy little thing called love. Because love, love is bigger than us. It's bigger than our best intention. You see, some people have this misunderstanding about love. Some people think that love is what makes me happy or what brings me satisfaction or what brings me joy, that love is that, that funny feeling I get, that love is all about me. I'm going to tell you, if it starts with you and ends with you, it's not love. It's narcissism maybe, but it's not love. Love is never self Centered. Love is always other-centered. It's other-centered. It's me investing in someone else to bring them joy, to bring them happiness, to bring them peace, to bring them salvation in Christ. That's love. But if it starts with what's going to make me happy and how, what I'm going to get from this, that's not love. That's, that's not even close to love. But when Jesus loves people, he loves them in a way that is challenging to me. It may not be challenging to you, but it's challenging to me. Because Jesus could have called out those Pharisees in a very public way and put all of the shame on them that they had put on that woman. And that's what I would be inclined to do. I don't know about you, but that would be my first inclination if I knew what Jesus knew about what was going on, I would have said, hold it, guys. No, 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 no. You guys set her up. You guys are more guilty than she is because you arranged the whole deal. You enticed her to sin. You have eyewitnesses. You let the guy go, or maybe one of you is the guy. See, that's what I would have been inclined to do in my humanity. But because God is love, he not only ministers to the accused, but to the accuser. And he finds a way to not only call them out in a very private kind of way, and he saves Whatever sense of dignity they have left, Jesus leaves it intact. And they're able just to slip out quietly. Now, it is an interesting thing, and I think there's some instruction points here that I probably ought to mention. I said before that sexual sin ought to be dealt with sexually. I think as a, as a Christianity hasn't done a great job of that in some cases. I'm not trying to endorse this, that, or the other. 
But when I look at the LGBTQ agenda and all of that stuff and, and, and look at LGBTQ people, many of whom are my dear friends, when I look at all of that and I see how especially extreme right-wing Christianity has dealt with some of those things, it embarrasses me to be a Christian at times. We need to treat people with love, dignity, and respect. And when I see people holding signs that tell them they're going to hell because of their sexual orientation, it makes me weep. Because I don't think Jesus would do that. Jesus has an adulteress at his feet. If he was ever going to condemn somebody for a sexual act, this would be that moment. But that's not what he does. Jesus asks the woman a question, where are your accusers? And she dares to look up. And she sees that they've all pieced out. And she says, there aren't any. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. You need to change your life. You need to make better decisions. I don't even think Jesus needed to say that. I've got some very conservative friends, right? They're, if there's a right edge in conservatism, they are bumping up against that edge, right? And their favorite part of this whole story is that very last thing that Jesus says, go and sin no more, as though that's the solution to everything. Anybody ever tried not sinning? I hope that you have, right? I hope that you continue to try not sinning, right? But the reality is, is that until Jesus comes the second time, I'm afraid, I'm afraid that's going to be a challenge, isn't it? I don't even think Jesus needed to say that to that woman. Because I think when she encountered the amazing grace of Christ, that her life was changed from that moment on. That she wasn't going to do that again. That she wasn't going to engage in those sort of behaviors again. Because she has met the God who gave her grace. The one who demonstrated mercy instead of condemnation. John 3.16, everybody knows that verse. Very few people read the next verse. Because the Bible says that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus isn't here to condemn her. He's, he, he's not here to condemn you. Doesn't mean he excuses what you've done. It doesn't mean he brushes it away as though it's no big deal. But he's not to, con he, Jesus' purpose isn't to condemn you. His purpose is to save you. These Pharisees, these scribes who were, in my opinion, you can have your own, more guilty than she was because of what they did, Jesus excuses them too. He didn't condemn them either. There was one person that day who could have thrown a stone, and that was Jesus. The only one without sin. He could have condemned her. Would he have been right to condemn her? Legally, sure. But that's not who he is. That's not the God that I serve. That's not the God that Scripture declares God to be. God is love. Now, I don't want you to mistake what I'm saying. Because some people stay in abusive relationships because they think that's love. That's not love. Jesus doesn't expect you to stay in an abusive relationship.
Yes, you can forgive the person for the abuse, but at some point you need to find safety. And probably it's going to be outside of that relationship. You can still love somebody and not be in a relationship with them. Somebody said, yeah, but, but what about this? Or but what about that? There's always circumstances, right? There's always circumstances. But Jesus calls us to love people and love him. That's what he calls us to do. I think there's several reasons in Scripture why Jesus says that he doesn't want us to judge, right? Don't judge people. Don't judge people. He, he says that. Well, why does he say that? Well, I don't know what you would have done in this situation in John chapter 8. I think I know what I would have done. It wouldn't have been what Jesus did. But I think what Jesus did is excellent judgment. Excellent judgment. He handled the situation very well because he handled it in a way that preserved dignity as much as he could and demonstrated love, which is who he is. It's who he is. And I don't know that we do that very well. And so instead of asking us to judge people, instead of asking us to, to try to figure out all that stuff, Jesus asks us to do simply one thing. He says, I want you to love people. Just do that. I want you to love God. I don't want you to love people. One of my favorite texts in Scripture is John 13, 35. I think Jess mentioned it last week. And Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's in that upper room, and he says, this is how everybody is going to know you're my disciples, if you return a faithful tithe. No, that's not what he says. <laughs> Returning a faithful tithe is good, but that's not what he says. This is how everyone is going to know you're my disciples, if you read Ellen White. No, doesn't say that either. This is how everybody's going to know you're my disciple if you observe the Bible Sabbath. Nope, that's not what he said. You know what he said? This is how everyone's going to know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Wow. People are going to know you're a disciple of Christ when you love them like Christ loves them. So I don't know where you fit in the story today. If you're the accuser or the accused, if you've been caught red-handed recently, I don't know. But I do know this. God loves you. And he is for you, not against you. Let me pray with you. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you are the God that Scripture declares you to be. I'm thankful, God, that you are for us. And that you demonstrate that, not only in Scripture, but in our daily life. I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us of the things that we might have done to offend you or to, to really damage that relationship and ask in this moment that you would restore us in right relationship with you. Thank you, Father, for what you've done and for what you promised to do. And so we praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen.